Hi there, listeners. Welcome to Random Talks of Kindness, a.k.a. Group Therapy for America. Because sharing isn't just about caring. It has the power to bring us closer together. I'm Monica O'Leary-Singh, and this is Random Talks of Kindness. Hi there, listeners. My guest today is Karen Kleiman, who has been a practicing clinical social worker focusing on maternal mental health for more than 35 years. Throughout the years, she has published numerous books and articles. Her latest book, Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts, A Healing Guide to Secret Fears of New Mothers, was published in March by Familias. It is a book that every mom should read, whether you're pregnant or you have a newborn or you have a three-year-old, because honestly, it just makes you feel better and feels not so wacky about yourself. It is truly an honor to have her here on Random Talks of Kindness with me today. As many of you know, I had planned to release podcast interviews last fall. Then I got pregnant, and I was holding my breath, hoping the pregnancy would stick. Then I felt physically miserable, so I put the podcast on hold. And then something totally unexpected happened. I felt mentally and emotionally awful, beyond what I could even put into words. I I didn't even know how to express it to family and friends or my husband. So, of course... I turned to internet and I did some Googling and something came up that I had never heard of, prenatal depression. I knew of postpartum depression and I had a really close family member who experienced it, so I was aware of that. But here I was, this baby that is very wanted and I felt awful. And all I could think of was, what is wrong with me? How could I be so miserable? Then I saw one of Karen's new book illustrations on Facebook and I said, I can relate to this. So therefore, I reached out to interview Karen because I think it's super important we take prenatal depression out of the shadows of shame and talk about what it really feels like and how families and women can get through it. Therefore, I'll not just be having this conversation with Karen, but also reaching out to some other women who have experienced it to talk about their experiences so we can feel more connected and not so alone in this idea. I was ashamed, embarrassed, and shocked by my emotions and my mental state. I have experienced some sadness related to depression before, but never like this. This, I couldn't move off the couch. I didn't want to watch TV. I didn't want to do anything. Anonymously, I reached out on Facebook to some mommy's group, and I realized women didn't want to talk about it. One woman bravely, privately messaged my friend who had posted for me, and she and I had this great text message And she helped me with a couple of great ideas to help me through the time. And honestly, just knowing that somebody else could relate just made me feel so much better. This is why I am thankful to explore this topic with an amazing resource like Karen Kleiman. Karen is an author, advocate for maternal mental health, and teacher. Today, we're going to unwrap Karen's life story and understand why and how she became an expert on prenatal and postpartum depression. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Monica, for having me. First of all, on behalf of all mothers, thank you so much for spending a lifetime speaking and writing and bringing all these topics out and making them more normalized in our society. It it really is amazing that you've done this for all of us. Thank you. What's amazing is that it's still so misunderstood after all these years, you know, so we've, we've come very far and we have far to go. This is the thing that I I am shocked at, exactly what you just said. And I would like to know how early in your career you came to focus on such an important and often taboo topic. So let me see how I can best answer this. I've never had a good answer for this because 
I think when I'm asked that question, I immediately feel something a little funny, a little akin to somebody coming back from Utah after a ski excursion with a broken leg, but they they did it falling down the steps, not you know not doing a triple loop on the on the slopes. So they feel sort of funny saying what happened. So. The reason I say that analogy is that I, I often feel like I'm disappointing my clients and my audience by saying I did not have postpartum depression, nor did I have postpartum anxiety. That being said, anxiety is not a stranger to me. You know, I've had anxiety much of my life, but when I was pregnant and postpartum, I, I, I really didn't. And so what happened instead was I had some experiences that brought me to the doctor, I had some medical complications and I had some concerns with the baby and with the delivery and various things were happening that slowly sort of made me realize that, you know, this was 35 years ago, that the needs of postpartum women were really falling through the cracks and that there were subsets of places to go. I could go to my pediatrician, I could go to my OB, I could go to my mother-in-law, I could go to my... But there wasn't a sense, you know, there were there were breastfeeding support, there was a lot of leche, that was about the only thing that was out there then. But there wasn't, there was just always this, this like, where do I go? Who do I ask? What do I do? Is this normal? There was, of course, there was no internet. So I found myself realizing that there was, what we were lacking was this community of support for questions that you don't know whether they're normal or not at the, at, at the time. So when my children were very little, I started researching, so to speak, getting myself involved. I became a breastfeeding counselor, started talking to new moms, starting listening to how are they feeling and why are they all feeling so bad. And I put out an ad in the local newspaper studying, you know, a therapist studying postpartum depression. If you've recently had a baby, come talk to me. This is an amazing story, Monica, because at the time, three women got back to me. And two of these three women were over 70 years old. Oh, wow. These two women, all three came at separate times for me to meet with them. And two of these three women told me that 50 years ago, they felt ashamed and despairing and guilty and didn't want to tell anybody, not their mother, not their husband, not their best friend, how they were feeling because there would be no understanding, no support. They stayed behind closed doors for weeks or months, hoping it would go away by itself. It did eventually, and both said separately that this was the first time they had ever talked to anybody about this, and I had the closest thing to what I can imagine as some sort of magical moment where I thought, I'm supposed to be doing this. These women were telling me for the first time how bad this felt, and so I did. I started asking questions, and I started labeling myself. This is always my marketing uh, magic to, to clinicians who don't feel good about themselves. You just go out there and say you are an expert. And I went out and I put cards out and said, I am a therapist who works with new moms, helping them through postpartum depression. And there was nobody doing it. And so doctors, you know, I met with doctors and they sent me their moms and I learned about postpartum depression and anxiety from the moms who were experiencing it. And they told me what they felt and they told me what they needed. And that's how I learned. That story is absolutely amazing. Why do you think that we still, all these years later, it's still hard for people to talk about prenatal depression, um, motherhood anxieties, fears, postpartum depression? 
why is it so hard for us to talk about these things? And why can't we shake these out of the shadows? It's a really good question. You know, researchers and experts, they find all kinds of biological components and genetic components and physiologic components. And we're talking about, you know, new medications that target the physiologic vulnerabilities and so forth. But if we put all of that aside and we just think predominantly of the culture we live in and the, and the personalities of each of us who try so hard to, to fit into the expectations and sort of the social structure of new moms, then I don't know how much the biology and genetics and predisposition all play into it other than, I mean, I think it's huge that we we work so hard, want something so much, and then we lose it in some way, that that, that is a factor that is just so hard to get past. It, it is so hard to get past. And so all these things can help. The medication will help and the therapy can help. But it's a good question that has no good answer. This The stigma, you know, that we have about a woman who becomes a mother and doesn't necessarily feel good about being a mother is the shame of admitting that out loud or even admitting it to yourself is so powerful. It continues to literally kill women. Yes. Literally, some women can struggle with reconciling, but cannot reconcile this to the point where they'd rather leave their baby motherless than have a mother that feels so bad about themselves. And and I will say, I don't want to forget to mention, Monica, that a history of depression and anxiety, absolutely, it is, it is one of the biggest predictors mm-hmm. that a mom may experience this during her pregnancy or postpartum period. So moms who do have a history of, of anxiety or depression, whether it's been treated and diagnosed or whether it's, you know, you're a mom who says, you know, I had days or weeks or months in my adolescence or my childhood where I or I might have been depressed because I was feeling, you know, A, B, and C. If you think depression or anxiety has been part of your past, you are very much at risk to experience it when you are pregnant or postpartum and should probably be proactive about connecting with support to protect yourself. And it appears from my experience that, you know, they say pregnancies can be so different between children is that I didn't experience it at all with my first child, and yet with this pregnancy, I did. So I guess I assumed it wouldn't affect me, and then, bammo, it did. <laughs> That's important information for your listeners to hear, because you do sort of feel like you're protected if you if you got through a pregnancy or two without it. And you probably are less at risk than somebody who was depressed during their first pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But it certainly can happen, and it can certainly happen just like that. And even when you are prepared, you know, you've got a therapist lined up, you've got, you know, medication lined up, let's just say, you've got your support system lined up, it can happen anyway. And so preparing for it is the best way to protect yourself. And you had mentioned a minute ago about, you know, sort of our societal expectations and then onto ourselves is that I know one of my own issues that I'm probably share with a lot of other women is I look around and I see other women. One's got two children. One's got three children. One's got four children. And I'm like, she can do it. She showered today. She's dressed. She's got her children dressed. They're going to the grocery store. I saw a mother of three the other day at the grocery store. And I wanted to say, how are you doing it? How are, how are you doing this in my head? All I could do was criticize myself why can't you do three children like that? Look, she's doing it. Why can't you do that? Pull yourself together. And that self-criticism I know is not helpful, but it it's what happens. Right. 
So in, in response to that, let me say, first of all, that's a normal, what we call a normal human response. That is just sort of what happens. And what we need to do is get better at taking care of ourselves in response to our own response. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so we have to figure out a way, whether it's a, you know, it's sort of a mantra or cognitive insertion, you know, a soundbite, some, some piece of self-compassion, some way for us to quiet our own disquieted brain, our own, what you call, you know, the self-critical voice. And my husband is actually a really great antidote for me. He taught me a long time ago when I went across the street, we, I live in a development where like all the houses are the same, but inside they're all special and different, right? Mm-hmm. So we went across the street to my neighbors and I went there and it was like, it was like, like somebody was going to come in and do a photo shoot for a home magazine. And every, there wasn't a piece of paper. She is a child. There wasn't, wasn't a piece of paper out of place. Everything was expensive and white and beautiful. And we left there. We walked across the street into our home, and I looked at my house, which was awesome, but all of a sudden, I said to my husband, why does our house look like it did when we were in college? And it's <laughs> like, it's the same furniture that we put together when, you know, from Ikea, and there's shit all over the place. And what are we, 15? Like, are we ever going to have a grown-up house? And he looked at me, and he said, I hope not. Oh. He said, this is who we are. This house is filled with love and laughter and amazing things. You walk into that house, it is cold, it is formal, and it is not a comfortable place to be. And I will never forget that because it just reminded me of who I was and that I am good enough. You're always going to be comparing, always on social media now, it's, it's just rampant. It's rampant. So find a sentence, find a moment, find a mantra, find something, uh, something that you can hold, that you can bring to your heart and say, no, 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 no. This is good. Everything is good. I'm good. Go back and get ground yourself because there's too much out there. There's too much information and too much to compare yourself and the anxiety will be out of control. So keep yourself centered. And I can say something like, I don't know her story and I am good enough in my own life. Of course. Yeah. That's, that's a wonderful lesson, too. We never know their stories. And sometimes the people that look the best are doing that because they are so out of control. And there's so much going on in their life that the way they can gain control is by looking really good and by letting everybody else know and believe that they are really good. And it's not the case. Right. And that is what, in, in your new book, one of the illustrations is do not assume if she looks good that she is fine. I struggled with that during my pregnancy because I look really good. I don't gain a lot of weight except in my belly. I like to wear dresses as much as humanly possible because pants bother my my lower pelvis. And I have to wear heels, which is a really funny thing. But everybody thinks that I'm wearing heels and dressing up just to overdo it. But the heels actually take away the foot pain because in the back pain because of the, the way it changes my uh, curvatures. And so... I need to wear heels throughout my pregnancy. And everybody's like, oh, you look amazing. Oh, da, da, da. And inside, I was cringing. And inside, I didn't want to say to everybody, yeah, I look good and I can't get off the couch. And I look good and I don't want to do the dishes and I don't know what to make for dinner. I don't care about making dinner. I, I Yes, I have a three-year-old to feed, but I don't want to feed him. <laughs> I don't want to feed so, him. Uh, so, Monica... 
what would help you express that discrepancy? What What do you think moms should be better at doing to help? Because you also don't want to do the opposite. You don't want to walk around, you know, in your pajamas and go to work and say, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. So what, how do we resolve that discrepancy? For me, I had to find people that I could be open with. Sometimes yeah, it, right. it, it didn't happen naturally. Sometimes once somebody said to me one day, how, you know, how are you doing? And honestly, I just burst into tears. I couldn't contain myself at that moment. She turned out to be a safe place. I didn't know it at the time because we, we were only uh, daycare moms. So it was like, you know, we don't know each other very well. But I found that a couple of people I could be honest with and trust yeah. that I could say the real truth to. If you don't mind me interrupting, that is actually the perfect answer. And let me just explain to you why. Because social media is sometimes showing teaching young moms the opposite. And which is not always helpful, like let's tell everything to everybody and let's reveal all. And frankly, this facade that you're talking about, about looking good when you don't feel good, is also has an important purpose, mm -hmm. right? Right. It's what, it's what gets us out of bed. It's what helps us, you know, wash our hair when we'd rather not, not bathe for three weeks. So there are certain steps that we have to take not just to function in the world, but also to counterbalance the, the pull of depression. Mm -hmm. So we need to force ourselves to get up and look better than we feel. That's a foundation of getting through depression. But at the same time, if we go too far and if we look too good and we tell everybody we're fine when we feel really, really, really bad, then we are reinforcing this pretense and sort of empowering the depression in an ironic way. So the balance of what you said is actually the precise solution. So we get up and we do what we have to do. We shower, we brush our teeth, we feed our children, we get up, we put some clothes on, we put our high heels on, put some makeup on if it makes us feel better, and we go to work. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't find one or two or three safe people that we love, that we trust, that we that know that love us, whether it's our partner, our best friend, our doctor, our mother, and we say, I feel terrible. And you mentioned earlier your husband, and in talking about this, I found that there were a couple of girlfriends that I leaned on, and my therapist that I've known for a number of years, I leaned on her. But I realized that for me, the hard part was talking to my husband and my sisters and my parents and letting them know. But when I didn't tell my husband and my close family that continued the depression too much because I was like, well, why aren't they noticing? Why aren't they asking me? Why aren't they checking on me? Why aren't they doing more to uh, help me through this? And when I said something to one of them, they said, well, we didn't realize how bad you're feeling. And I realized that I didn't confide in them because I was so uncomfortable. You know, I, I was confiding in these couple of girlfriends but I couldn't yeah. get myself to confide in them because I was embarrassed and ashamed and I didn't know how they were going to react. And I finally did talk to my husband about it and it was a relief, but it was still, you know, sometimes those people that are super, super close to us, it's really hard to show our faults because I was nervous about what he would think, you know? How do we talk to our husbands about this? Not only are you nervous about how he would think, you know, you're nervous that sometimes our wonderful partners 
actually aren't there for us even when they tell us because they're scared or because they aren't informed or because they don't have the skills. They don't know what to do. And so now, oh, great. Now I've told you. Now I'm vulnerable. And you're still not there for me. So yes. so th- that can, and, and I'm talking about wonderful supportive partners who may not know what to do or, or what to say. So that's very scary. And our wonderful supportive partners also really, really like us to be in control. <laughs> and they want us to hurry back and get better and come back to them. They don't really like when we need them in this way. So it, it can be very unsettling for a relationship. And there are lots of really good reasons why women don't want to do this. But it will prolong the suffering. And there's a lot of really impressive research that says not only will her depression be longer and harder to treat without his support, but he is more at risk for depression also if her depression is prolonged like that. So moms need to do it. They need to do it for their marriage. They need to do it for their mental health. They need to do it for their children and so forth. And if you can't do it by yourself, then we encourage you to you know, bring partners into, into therapy. Now, that being said, moms often will be sort of protest this and say, you mean, okay, so now not only am I sick, not only do I have to confront him with something that's going to make him feel bad, I have to then tell him what I need from him. And then, and we say, yeah, you do. You actually do. Because most women bear the burden of being the relational healers. Not all, but most are sort of better at this. And so their loving husband can look them in the eyes and say, I don't know what to do for you. Right. And you can get angry and you can be resentful and you can get more depressed by saying, okay, great, thanks, never mind. Or you can say, here's what you can do. So one of the best ways to get some relief from your partner is to be very specific about what you need and what you want and what would be helpful. I will admit I did not do that. Like for me, you know, figuring out what was going to be for dinner for for us was you know, one of my downsides, right. <laughs> would it have been better to say to him, I just really need you to not ask me what's for dinner or not ask me what we're going to do for dinner, but just pick something up on the way home and just assume we'll eat it. Like, what should I have done differently? Well, that, that's a good question. It's going to be different for everybody. What you would find helpful would not be helpful to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So you need to sort of sort that out for yourself. We would divide the support into practical and emotional support. So under practical support would be, that would be an example. I need you to bring home dinner three days a week. Don't ask me, just bring it home. That would be amazing if that's what would work for you. I need you to, you know, do A, B, and C with the baby. And I need you to, you know, that those, those kinds of practical things. See, mm-hmm. On an emotional level, I need you to call me three times a day when you get to work, once after lunch and once before you come home. I need you to ask me these specific questions. How was your day? Is there something you need from me? You know, you know what I mean? Like yes. literally talk to them like they're 12 you know, and say, here's what would feel good when you come home. I want you to spend 15 minutes with the baby, then put the baby down and come rub my back because it helps me breathe better. Mm -hmm. or I want us to get a babysitter and I want you to sit with me and take a walk with me every night and hold my hand or whatever it is. You, you know, you literally can write a list, write it down. I had a woman who said to me, she went to the emergency room with her husband who happened to be a psychiatrist and he, they brought her, he brought her to the emergency room because she was panicking and, and not feeling good. And she didn't need to go to an emergency room, but he didn't, you know, nobody knew what to do. And when I saw her, she said, he's a freaking psychiatrist. What do I have to do? Write down what it is I need from him? Well, what was the answer? Yes. Yes, of course you do. Of course you do. Hmm. He doesn't know. 
we don't always know. You don't always know when you're in the depths of despair what would help. Mm-hmm. But you certainly know when you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. So it does behoove moms, no matter how bad they're feeling, to really sit down with a safe person, a therapist or a best friend, or or maybe in the quiet moments of themselves and say, what would feel good from him for me or from my partner? What do I need? What, what would help? It's not going to make the depression go away, but every day I need you to do these three things for me. And in your experience with your practice, have you found that, see, I would be nervous that my husband would put up a lot of resistance to that, but do you find that actually men find relief in that, that being given a couple of things that they can do actually helps them to know how to help us? That's been my experience. I find that men who might resist being told how to help um, might have extraordinary anxiety about this, might have some history of mental health issues in their own family that make them really nervous, might want to feel better continuing to deny that you're feeling as bad as you're feeling, might like to be in control and don't like somebody else telling them what to do and how to do it. I'm not sure for every man it's, it's something different. I would say, though, I would I would caution women to not submit to the resistance of their husband, but to embrace it and to gently confront it and say, I need you. When you see patients, when you're talking with people about prenatal depression, and it, and it can also work with postpartum as well, but I had to figure out some things that helped me through it. For me, it was things like distraction. I found I needed to be distracted. I read a lot of books. I downloaded a lot of books on my nook and, and just started reading. I didn't find TV helpful. I, I really needed to have my brain focused on something totally out there. I found that doing things out of the ordinary. So I even just started driving to work on different roads. I needed to do things differently. I needed to have different plans with my three-year-old, things that we had never done before. I needed to go do things that were not our typical Saturday or Sunday. I, I just needed to really distract myself as much as possible. Then one of the things that the woman on I met on Facebook said to me was, and have somebody come take your son and go do things. My husband has a very busy work schedule, and I, on the weekends, I just couldn't get myself to want to go take him to do the fun things, go to the park or go to the play centers just to get out and do things. And so she had said, ask for people to take him and take him for an afternoon, take him for a morning, get him out of the house and just just let you be. Are there certain things that you find do help women like this, or do you find it really depends on the woman? What's been your experience? So far, Monica, I can say throughout the course of this interview that you've done everything right. (laughs) You have very good instincts about taking care of yourself, and I know it probably doesn't feel that way because it doesn't always help you immediately, but you really, really have good insight into this. So, yes, let me validate what you just said. So, yeah, the biggest and the hardest challenge when you have depression or anxiety during pregnancy is to accept that it's there and to Mm -hmm. embrace it to some extent so that you can sort of navigate how much do I have to push myself and how much do I not have to, right? So so I do have to push myself to get up and get out of the house, but I don't have to go to that party with 500 people that I don't know, right? So Mm -hmm. we want to give ourselves some cushion here, but we want to also make sure that we're moving forward in the right direction. So embracing and accepting it. And then we do find that distraction is one of the very best interventions for a brain that is very stuck in ruminative thought or depressive thought 
or obsessive thought, when you're going down those pathways, are those you know, those neural pathways are sort of the easiest to go down. So if somebody says something, it triggers you, here we go. Oh, my God, I'm never going to get better. This is going to be terrible. I shouldn't have had this baby. And we just go spiral down and down and down. So when we can distract the brain, and I can't really speak to the biology of it, but the brain doesn't really know the difference between a scary thought and a fun thought. And so, I mean, really simple, silly things like I learned in Psych 101, I can't, I can't, give the reference for this, but there was some psychology experiment where they had one group hold a pencil between their lips while they were watching cartoons and one group was holding a pencil in their teeth. If you put the if you put the pen or pencil in your lips and you hold it, you can tell that you're you're actually making a frown. And if you put the pencil pen in your teeth, your lips are going up into a smile. And they actually found that the the group that held the pen in their teeth perceives the comics as funnier. Their brain thought it was funny because they were smiling. Do you get it? Yeah. So my mother, raised by a mother who survived the Holocaust, she taught me when you're feeling bad and you're driving, smile, and your brain thinks you're feeling good. I said, Mom, that is the silliest thing I've ever heard. And I find myself doing it to this day. Sounds stupid. But again... On a better scale, what you described, the distraction, your brain doesn't know you're depressed when you're reading and you're getting involved in another somebody else's story, and it eases the brain, it quiets the obsession, it actually really works. Denial doesn't work, but distraction does. Denial is a way of saying to your brain, you're fine, you're fine, it's fine, stop it, you know, you're fine, just pretend like it's not there. That makes it bigger. That's when we say resistance creates persistence. Don't pretend it's not there. It's just going to get bigger and louder. But if you say it's there, I don't like it. I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to go call a friend. I'm going to go pick up a book. I'm going to do a crossword puzzle. Those things will keep the brain from obsessing. In addition to reading a book, you know, we do recommend like puzzles and and coloring and, and mindful kinds of thought processes, but counting, even Counting the tiles in the floor when you're in a waiting room or something can just keep your brain from going down those pathways that it wants to go down. And so really the first step to all of that is coming out of the denial for yourself and allowing yourself to say the thoughts, the terrible thoughts that are going through your mind. I I mean, some of the thoughts I was having, I'm going to say this publicly, which I'm, I'm comfortable saying, but I would never hit my child. And anybody who knows me knows I would never hit my child. But he was, you know, two and a half and he was having tantrums and just, you know, didn't want to put his pants on because, because he was two and a half. And I was losing my mind and I couldn't have mm-hmm. a normal reaction to that. And in my head, I wanted to, I wanted to hit him. I wanted to hit him so badly. I didn't, right. I stepped out of the room or I screamed, which would freak him out, but it was the only way that I could calm myself down. And usually at that point, he would pat me and be like, it's okay, it's okay, mommy, you're okay. Mm -hmm. Or he would start crying, and then I'd feel bad. But those terrible thoughts, we try to pretend as if they don't exist. But you're saying we really have Mm -hmm. to first say to ourselves, they exist, it's okay, you're not a terrible person. Now what do we do about them? How do we handle this? Yeah, self-compassion is really turning out to be one of the most significant antidotes to the shame. Right. 
So the, the shame just eats at us and reinforces every negative feeling that and every negative thought that we have about ourselves. And the easiest way to counteract, I don't mean easy, but, but in some ways the most sim- simplistic way to counteract that shame, those feelings of embarrassment and, and horror that we are having these thoughts is to be compassionate, self-compassionate. And that's really, really hard to do if you don't feel like you deserve it. And when you're yelling at your two-year-old, you don't feel like you deserve it, but you do. And so self-compassion teaches us to accept the fact that you're suffering right now and that this is really hard right now and that you're having a bad moment right now. And to, like you said, to separate yourself, make sure everybody's safe. And simple mantras like, it's okay, like you said, it's okay. And, and, you know, again, take a deep breath, ground yourself, make a phone call, do what you need to do. But beating yourself up will make the shame intensify. And what we want to do is contain it by labeling it and saying that you're okay and that you're doing the best you can. And it's not always going to feel this way. And this is just a moment. One of my girlfriends had me repeating, this is just a moment. It's going to pass. It's just Mm -hmm. a moment. Sounds like you're surrounded by some very, very supportive people. I, I am very fortunate that I do have some amazing people around me. That is for sure. Speaking of supportive people, actually, this woman helped me interpret what I read. When I was first Googling prenatal depression and the, the things that came up were not helpful. And as you mentioned, when I went on social media, actually, social media was not helpful because besides the woman who... There were two people who said, one said, oh, I had a friend who had this, and then the other woman private messaged me. But besides that, the women on social media didn't want to talk about it. They just wanted to say, you need to talk to your doctor, you need to talk to your doctor. And yes, granted, I knew I wanted to talk to the doctor and my therapist, but I wanted to hear other moms had gone through this. But people were so ashamed, they didn't even want to share that. And the people who had never experienced it just wanted to tell me to talk to a doctor. So that was not helpful. And then when I was Googling and it said that people who, women who are depressed during pregnancy, their babies are going to be typically lower birth weight and preterm delivery and have issues. I freaked out. (laughs) I, I, I freaked out. And luckily I had a, a girlfriend who said to me, wait a second, stop. You know, statistics are statistics. But let's drill down. They don't have any reason behind why this might be. She said those women, they may not be feeling well, so they're not taking care of themselves. And therefore, there may be birth weight issues or preterm delivery issues because they're not caring for themselves because they feel so awful. What are your thoughts on dealing with what we might read online and also this idea of taking care of ourselves and the baby and the depression. So if I just said stay off the internet, that wouldn't be done with it. We wouldn't be done with this conversation. <laughs> it, is, it is truly, I mean, we must say that 150 times a day and nobody listens. Nobody listens. Nobody listens. So the internet aside, I mean, you know, there is some, something that we refer to as Google mania and we, and we do sort of go there and look for answers. The thing about pregnancy and postpartum is that, Everything is so unpredictable. And the real scary reality is that, like we said before, no matter what we do and how well we do it, unpredictable things can and often do happen. And so we think that we can control the unpredictable, and we can't. But we try to control 
the unpredictable by over-controlling, right? What I'm eating, what I'm exposing myself to, the decisions I'm making, let me save my baby, let me not have a miscarriage, what if I do this, what if I do that? We have no control. There are some obvious things that we know that we shouldn't do, but if you are a smart pregnant and postpartum woman who's who's not pouring alcohol into her pregnant belly and is making good decisions about taking good care of herself, chances are really, really good that everything will be fine. And for generations, women have been having healthy babies without having access to all this information and without hearing that if they had one piece of sushi, they need to have a panic attack. Obviously, we want to make as good choices as we possibly can. But if you think you're that person who's already taking good care of herself, I would urge you to stay off the internet, urge you to make a list of one or two or three people that you feel are safe or resources that you know are reliable, that you can call and connect with. Is this okay? Can I have this? Can I do this? And understand that if something, God forbid, does happen, if there is a loss, it has nothing to do with the decisions you made. It's hard to absorb that because, like you said, we think we're in control and we think we can control the outcome by eating the organic apple or uh, not eating the cherries with pesticides or, you know, whatever. But it's we're just not in that kind of control. So we talk about this in, in a couple of my books. It's the metaphor of the water balloon. So you imagine a, a water balloon filled to the brim and it's in your hand and you're trying to balance it and it's wobbly and you're going to drop it. You're afraid you're going to drop it. And so you're squeezing tight and the more you squeeze, the more it wobbles. And the risk is that when you squeeze hard enough, it will either burst or it will flop out of your hand. And so the paradox of control is that the only way to control this, wa- this wobbly water balloon is to release your grip and to let go slowly, and then the water balloon settles in the palm of your hand. So you actually have more control if you let go. Letting go when you are anxious, letting go when you are hyper-worried, letting go when you are hyper-vigilant is really hard, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't aim for that by mindfully paying attention to not paying attention, Mm -hmm. to thinking about something else, to believing in the universe, to believing that everything's going to be okay, that you're making good choices, that the bad thing you ate yesterday is really okay and it's not going to hurt anybody and that your baby is going to be fine. And then, as I said, if bad things happen, they don't happen because we make bad decisions in general. That just happens to be the truth. Right. So do the best you can in letting go, because I, I do know that out of everything we talked about today, that's really a big challenge for most women. It's really a lot easier said than done. And it's a little annoying to hear see it all over social media, you know, just let go. It's like, if it were that easy, we'd all be doing it. It's really, really hard. But if you need help, there are a lot of good tricks. That That is a very helpful metaphor. It It is also very helpful, I would think, for pregnant women in general, whether they have depression or not, to also think of that during pregnancy, because during pregnancy, you you think every action you have has a reaction on the baby. You know, I was concerned about the thoughts in my head. Are they going to be toxic for the baby? And then I realized that, you know, during my son's pregnancy, I was very nervous. Uh, you know, it was the first time uh, mom and I 
I had had my miscarriage and I then I had to have fertility help and I had a lot of anxiety you know during my first pregnancy and I looked at him I like I can look at him now and that kid is amazing and he doesn't he's not a super anxious kid he's not a super depressed kid he's got no signs of the anxiety that I was having during my pregnancy with him and that's allowed me to say okay even though the thoughts in my head those thoughts are not affecting the baby in my belly the way that I think they are, you know, and to let go of that pressure. That's to- not to say that if you have a history of anxiety, you're not going to have anxious children. My, my children right. thank me every day for, for their anxiety. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thanks, mom. Yeah, you got my good stuff. You got some of my bad stuff too, you know. That's not to say that's not going to happen, but it's not right. because of your scared thoughts. It's not because, right. and you know, let me just also. That's more of the genetic this, part of it. Yes, but let me also insert this, and that is that when we talk about the profound effects on the baby in terms of like preterm birth and, you know, low birth weight and so forth, we are talking about untreated depression and anxiety. We are talking about symptoms of depression and anxiety that interfere with mom's ability to take care of herself, to sleep well, to eat well, and so forth. We are not talking about a mom who's having scary thoughts and who is in therapy or in treatment to learn ways to cope with that. Yeah, that's very good. Can we slightly turn, because something I think we didn't really address, but you just mentioned it now. I know what symptoms were my symptoms. You know, I was very restless. I was having a lot of sleepless nights. What are, are there, are there typical symptoms that go with prenatal depression? What are things that people can look out for if they're starting to feel them? The, the disclaimer is this. One of the reasons why for so long we didn't talk about prenatal depression is because they fell under the radar because in the medical community, healthcare providers are taught to believe that there is going to be a certain amount of emotional upheaval that it falls within normal parameters, right? So all pregnant moms, all postpartum moms experience a certain level of emotional changes and some moodiness and some difficulties eating and sleeping and so forth that we've been dismissing for a very long time. So first of all, we have to accept that there is a normal level of all that upset basically for everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we look at the postpartum period as an example of this, Mm -hmm. we'll say, okay, so the baby blues affect anywhere from 70 to 85%. We say that's practically every mom because every mom who's ever had a baby says it's true. They have baby blues. This happens from delivery to week two to three. So in the first three weeks, we expect there to be emotional changes, some anxiety, some fearfulness, some crying, some loss of joy, some why did I have this baby, some sleeplessness, some fatigue, all of this, you know, while the hormones are changing and shifting and, and while we are transitioning into this very exciting and scary time in our life. So we expect this and it is, quote, normal. Outside the three-week postpartum period, if mom experiences these feelings at month two, month three, week seven, it's not normal, okay? And so women who are told that they have the baby blues when they're three months postpartum and they tell their doctor they're feeling these feelings are are being misinformed and, and misguided. Doesn't mean something terrible is happening, but that's not how long those feelings should last. So likewise, if a pregnant mom says to her OBGYN, I'm feeling very moody and I feel like I'm crying, like, you know, every time there's a commercial, I'm crying. 
So the doctor may rightfully say this is normal. Your hormones are surging. It's, it's, we expect you to feel emotional. But they should also say if you continue to feel this way, if it continues, if it gets worse, if it interferes in your ability to function in any way, that is not okay. So distress is defined by the presence of anxiety and or depression that is perceived by mom as contrary to how she usually feels, and it impairs her ability to get through the day. And that's not okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether we pathologize it or not, whether we call it postpartum anxiety or prenatal depression or not, it's not okay to feel so bad that you can't function the way you want to. So whether your doctor validates that or not, it's not okay. So we need to get some professional support so that you feel better. The overlapping of symptoms between what the medical community has been trained to believe is normal and what moms may be distressed by is very subjective, right? Suffering is very subjective. What makes me suffer may not make you suffer. And so we don't have a blood test yet to say she's clinically depressed, she's just a worrier. We don't know Mm -hmm. what the difference is. So the difference is moms need to speak up. This is not okay. I don't like the way I'm feeling. And we might have to speak up multiple times. To multiple people. We might have to leave our current healthcare provider, which doesn't always feel good. But what if we're in a place that, while they do great C-sections, but they don't care about how you feel? You know, women have to make these kinds of choices when they talk about how they feel. It's hard to empower on behalf of yourself when you don't really know what the best path is or what the best solution will be. But women also have sort of extra sensory you know, sensations about these kinds of experiences. If, if you get those little senses that you're not in the right place for whatever reason, there are lots of good people that you can find to support you more now than ever. Well, on that note, I'm going to wrap up our conversation because I think that, like you said, this is really what we're talking about is raising our voice and whether it's with our friends, whether it's with our husbands or our families, whether it's with our medical professionals and being able to express what's going on for us. We started the, speak, the hashtag Speak the Secret campaign just in response to what you're saying right now. So moms would have a safe place to talk about what they need to talk about. And on our website, which is postpartumstress.com, we have a forum for moms to, quote, speak the secret. And we have a whole information about what are scary thoughts and, you know, how, how they're really okay, but they feel so bad. And here is a safe, anonymous place for you to speak your secret. We now have about 800 moms who have written their very, very scary thoughts. I mean, there are, we do put a trigger warning because some of them can be very, very scary. And then on our Instagram account, we, not only do we post the comics from the book that you mentioned, Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts, but we also take these Speak the Secret thoughts and we put them to comics that the same illustrator, Molly, she makes these faces for the Speak the Secret campaign and we will put them in quotations because they're very real thoughts that moms share with us and then we will put it on this face of of, an anonymous illustration, obviously. And the feedback that we get is, you know, precisely what you're saying. It can just feel so good to be in a safe place and say these things out loud and know that nothing bad is going to happen, that these thoughts are not associated with anything bad happening, and that the anxiety can go from a 10 to a 6 really fast, just knowing that it's okay. 
I love that Speak the Secret campaign. That sounds wonderful and very comforting. <laughs> yeah, check, check out the check out the our Instagram. It, it, it's at postpartum stress. Moms will find a lot of support for that there. And while we're talking about that, can you tell us the other ways people can find you on social media? So we have so Facebook is the Postpartum Stress Center, and Twitter is at Postpartum. I think. But Instagram is really by far our greatest source for moms to go and get support on social media. Wonderful. And, and I will have all of that on my website as well. I'll, I'll list all of your um, resources and links on, on my website. I do want to also reinforce what you said about Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts, that out of all my books that I've written, and I've always written to healthcare providers to help them be informed and also to moms to give them information if they're struggling with postpartum depression or anxiety. But Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts is the first book that I've done for all moms for every single woman who's ever given birth. And quite frankly, we've gotten lots of feedback from women who have not given birth and do not have children who have found support for their own scary thoughts and obsessions in their various relationships. So I have to say it's sort of my, my greatest accomplishment in that way that we can reach out to moms because if they are... If they are seeing healthcare providers that aren't asking the right questions, if they are in families who are dismissing how they're feeling, this book has there's some, a little bit of magic in there that is incredibly empowering. If you're feeling these things, here's what you need to do. If you're feeling this thing and somebody says that to you, this is not okay, and here's what you need to do. So it's the best way for me to get my voice and my experience into the hands of moms who need it. To wrap up our conversation, I would like to ask you one final question. I have a motto, ripples of love, waves of change. What would you like the ripples of your life to be? What I think of when I hear you say that brings me to when I'm teaching younger clinicians how to be experts in this work, I tell them that all the books in the world, all the research in the world, all the conferences they go to and everything they learn will not help her get better as well as how well she feels connected to you and cared for by you. And so my ripples have always been the way I connect to people. And It's never been about what I've learned in the academic world to help the woman sitting in front of me. It's always about my being able to look at her, feel her suffering, and tell her that I believe in her and that she will get better. And she leaves feeling better. So my ripples are magic and energy that allow me to connect to other people and help them believe in their own capacity to feel better. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and with all of our listeners. Hearing you speak is a serious relief for me, and I'm sure it will be for many other women who are feeling a range of emotions as well. Monica, you are awesome. You have shared more through your experience in this dialogue than I think that you may be aware of, but you have tons of healing power. This is scary sharing this stuff, but I just don't want other women to feel the way that I was feeling that I couldn't talk about it and that I didn't know how to talk about it or who to talk about it with. I just want us to be able to, like you just said, make those connections that we are in this together, you know? In that regard, I hope everyone listening will join me another time for another conversation that brings us just a little bit closer. I'm Monica Larry singh 
Thanks for tuning in to Random Talks of Kindness. To keep up with all our episodes, remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit randomtalksofkindness.com for bonus materials and follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Talks of Kindness. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.